Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the American Revolution, which was originally aired as one episode on the 13th of July, 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Episode 8, The American Revolution Part 2. Last time we examined the circumstances and controversies which turned many a colonist against their former British masters. As the frustrations and anger was internalised, London responded by appointing a General Gage as Governor of Boston, which was now on lockdown, and upheld as wholly to blame for its private hosting of a naughty tea party. In this episode we conclude our analysis and watch the revolution gain legendary status as all of Europe seems content to get involved. I will now take you to Spring 1774. Associate with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation, for it is better to be alone than in bad company. George Washington King George III had said upon learning of the American protests, 
We must master them or totally leave them to themselves and treat them as aliens. From this it could be interpreted that it was George, in his vengeful and embarrassed state, who declared war on the Thirteen Colonies and not the other way round. Whatever the truth in this, and it's a debate far outside the realms or abilities of this podcast to be quite honest, London didn't help itself when it sent a military man to do a governor's work, as General Gage arrived in Boston on the 13th of May, 1774, to find a population more united with their opposition to Britain than they had ever been before. Gage insisted on enforcing, without exception, the measures demanded by Britain. He ordered the Boston Harbour be closed and the port for Massachusetts be moved to Salem. Now the defiance began to creep in. While Americans obeyed and moved the port to Salem, they also set up a provincial congress from the remains of the General Assembly. As Gage reacted to this by sending in troops to shut them down, they barricaded the doors and voted to elect not just a provincial, but a continental congress, involving representatives from all of the 13 colonies. This event on the 1st of June, 74, was the first real concrete sign that Americans were seeking political separatism from Great Britain. King George, even now, could have diffused the situation by agreeing to a few demands and writing a few of the colonists' grievances, but instead of doing that, George decided it would just be way more fun to anger the 13 colonies yet again. The 22nd of June 1774 Quebec Act increased the tension among the 13 colonies because it guaranteed the French population living there various freedoms and rights that those of the 13 colonies seemed to be without. King George knew that he had to appease those living in Quebec, seeing as they were French citizens in all but name, but such moves outraged the Americans who had to fight tooth and nail for the slightest concession. Resentment seemed to be growing to boiling levels. George guaranteed the Quebec citizens land to the west of the 13 colonies, and this was seen as the most intolerable of all the elements of the act. Since it promised these proto-French citizens what the Americans saw as land essential to their future, an early form, perhaps, of manifest destiny. While this was happening, the Port Act, which closed Boston's harbour, was starving the population. This had been the goal of George all along, to starve the rebellious spirit out of the Americans living there and contain this spirit so that it did not spread. But George and his advisers' rash acts actually caused it to spread, as of course we know. Instead of the other colonies seeing what was happening to Boston and then being scared from following their revolutionary plans, they became convinced that such acts only demonstrated how unfit Britain was to rule them, and they began actively supporting those in Boston. Rice was sent from the Carolinas, wheat was sent from New York, and corn was sent from Quebec, the same Quebec George had just attempted to appease. The next step was representation, and the called-for Continental Congress was formed on the 5th of September, 74, pulling in delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies, since Georgia, history has mostly forgotten, actually opted out. This new Congress insisted it would withhold taxes from the British until they repealed the unpopular acts, but they also began ordering the citizens of the 13 colonies to acquire firearms for themselves and prepare to resist the British by force if necessary. On a side note, in one of those what-if moments, the prestigious lawyer, Joseph Galloway, began distributing a plan which would see the 13 colonies adopt a kind of dominion status within the British Empire. 
This would have entailed a Grand Council to be established at a defined city in the East. This Grand Council would have powers over local affairs in the 13 colonies, but would still answer to Britain in certain key circumstances. Galloway's Plan of Union, as it's now known, was another alternative to the revolutionary idea of a completely independent 13 colonies. The Continental Congress voted on whether or not to accept it as their preferred goal, but in the end it was defeated by just one vote. Just one vote. Had it not been defeated, could we have seen an America in the same status as Canada or Australia centuries later? Certainly a possibility, but Congress did not dwell on what might have been. They instead began denouncing a total of 13 acts which had been created by Britain's Parliament since 1763, including the Stamp Act, Quartering Act, Quebec Act and Port Act. The Congress voted that these acts were unconstitutional, and on the 20th of October 1774, they declared a joint and complete boycott of Britain in her entirety until Britain repealed all of the acts. Instead of repealing the acts, the British governor of Boston, General Gage, was developing plans to move and capture large stocks of ammunition and cannon from the nearby Charlestown and Cambridge arsenals, lest they fall into the hands of the American ruffians. When the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts learned of this, they equipped a militia with the 15 grand that they had raised, and sent these men off to prevent Gage from succeeding. This band of militia adopted the now famous name, that of course we know from the likes of Fallout 4, the Minutemen, because they were said to be able to equip and form themselves effectively on a minute's notice. Which is a good thing because a settlement is under attack and Preston Garvey needs your help. Paul Revere at this stage was riding all over the 13 colonies. First he delivered the Suffolk Resolves, a document which basically put in writing the objections and plans of the new Continental Congress. Then he wrote to warn New Hampshire Provincial Congress member John Sullivan about the planned capture of Fort William and Mary in New Hampshire by Gage's force. Gage has sent a group of redcoats to capture the fort and secure its stocks, but when confronted by the numerically superior militia, led by Sullivan to prevent such an action, the redcoats surrendered. They were stunned to see such a well-equipped force materialise seemingly from out of nowhere. For his part, Gage hadn't even known that militia were being raised in each province to such an extent, and the revelation shocked him. Remember that the British had not expected to fight armies of American men. It was believed that they would only be peacekeeping and enforcing taxes. Because of the colonists' fears and their professed need to preempt any British seizures of military stores, lest their colonial militias be at the mercy of the Redcoats, tensions were ratcheted up far quicker than anyone expected. The surrender of the small Redcoat force in New Hampshire on the 10th of December, 74, was of little strategic consequence, but it sent shockwaves around the world. London now saw the possibility of a full-blown revolution in the making. While the Americans gathered supplies from the various forts and arsenals, and began preparing for battle with their former colonial masters. In just ten years, the situation in Britain's most populous colony had escalated to such an extent that violence seemed imminent. But it wasn't all rosy for the revolutionaries. The Sons of Liberty had galvanised a vast amount of the population for their cause, but one should never believe that the entirety of the 13 colonies supported them. 
A fact often forgotten in American history is that the population of the 13 colonies in 1775, peaking at nearly 2.5 million in 75, did not contain only American revolutionaries or Americans that sympathised with those revolutionaries. The story of the Loyalist is quite a sad but also interesting one, as an inevitable result of colonial rule is that some will still side with their masters for various reasons. The historian Robert M. Calhoun wrote that Our best estimates put the population of adult white male loyalists somewhere between 15 and 20%. Approximately half the colonists of European ancestry tried to avoid involvement in the struggle. Some of them deliberate pacifists, such as Quakers, other recent immigrants, and many more simple apolitical folk. The Patriots received active support from perhaps 40-45% to of the white populace, and at most no more than a bare majority. So loyalists made up less than a fifth of the population at the most, but the Patriots, or revolutionaries, often made up less than half, depending on where in the 13 colonies you happen to be. Concerning demographics, historian Robert Middlecoff noted that The largest number of loyalists were found in the middle colonies. Many tenant farmers of New York supported the king, as did many of the Dutch and in New Jersey. The Germans in Pennsylvania tried to stay out of the revolution, just as many Quakers did, and when that failed, they clung to the familiar connection rather than embrace the new. Highland Scots in the Carolinas, a fair number of Anglican clergy and their parishioners in Connecticut and New York, a few Presbyterians in the southern colonies, and a large number of the Iroquois Indians stayed loyal to the king. It was often difficult to maintain one neutrality in the war, especially as the fighting became more desperate, but it's important to remember that many in the war, from the Loyalists to the British soldiers, to those who tried to remain neutral, to some of the reluctant revolutionaries, often did not want to fight and wanted only to get on with their lives. The story of the revolution that many are told often contains nauseating amounts of patriotic exaggeration and a widely circulated image of the entirety of America kicking out the British. But just like every war or rebellion or revolt in history, it was never that simple. It's important not to forget those who would have rather been at home tending their farms or looking after their families, and yet ended up caught in the crossfire or forced to choose a side. For those men and women who were undecided in 1775, men and women who history, or at least the popular version of history, has chosen to mostly gloss over, they were soon to see a war erupt for a cause which they perhaps did not fully understand, but which they knew would drastically affect their lives. If only they could have known how drastically. It was, in fact, the regulars are out and not the British are coming, which Paul Revere shouted as he rode around the Boston countryside. The British had landed troops and were marching to reach the boats which would take them to Concord, where a stash of Patriot arms were located. Paul roused the villagers up and around Boston and told them to prepare themselves for battle. At around midnight, he reached Lexington and the house of Samuel Adams. Inside, John Hancock was also sleeping. When the guard posted outside was informed of what was happening, he burst through the door of Adams's house. Awakened, Adams stared out into the midnight where a drizzle had begun to set in. What a glorious morning this is, Adams exclaimed to his fellow revolutionaries. 
And, legend has it, only when Hancock stared at him incredulously did Adams add, I mean, for America. (laughs) Is that story even true? I don't know. Let me know, please, because to me it sounds like one of those legends that are impossible to quantify and kind of just get perpetuated over time. So do let me know if Samuel Adams actually said that and if that actually happened. Anyway, so the American rebels had set in motion a series of events which would found a new nation, but... First, they would have to fight, and against the most powerful nation in the world at that time, the British Empire. The Minutemen were marching to counter the British Army's move on Concord, which as we know contains raiders, and as the shots began to ring out in the early hours of the 18th of April, 75, it was clear that the American Revolution had begun. The battles of Concord and Lexington are seen today as the first military encounters between the American militia forces and the British army. This was fought on the 19th of April, 1775. The battles contained numerous acts of bravery by the American militia, including holding Concord's North Bridge against tightly packed formations of British soldiers. The British force crumbled and withdrew back to Boston, beginning the 10-month siege of that city. In response, an additional 4,500 British troops were landed near Boston, but these forces instead marched to intercept the Americans along the Charlestown Peninsula. Gage ordered his soldiers to attack the American positions head-on, but his men were cut to pieces by a well-dug-in American militia force. The British took the American positions on the third wave of attack, but only because the Americans had expended all their ammunition and withdrawn to fight another day. The Battle of Bunker Hill, as it's now known, is held up as the perfect example of a Pyrrhic victory, as British losses were so severe within it that they hadn't got the strength to follow up on their so-called success. Major Pitcairn had claimed, before the war had really begun, I am satisfied that one active campaign, a smart action and burning two or three of their towns, will set everything to rights. But he was among the 249 British soldiers killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill. After the battles of the summer, George Washington had appealed for more sources of military equipment, as his militia were desperately short of powder and artillery. Much of what he needed would be imported from France, a soon-to-be vital element of the American war effort. On the 4th of March, 76, heavy cannons, which had been captured from Fort Ticonderoga were placed along the Dorchester Heights by the Americans, and such a move meant that the British position in Boston was untenable. The British general in this case, William Howe, then decided to withdraw his forces by sea, and he sailed for Nova Scotia on the 17th of March that year. For those of you that don't know, myself included, before I did my research, the 17th of March is celebrated in Massachusetts today as Evacuation Day, a public holiday which sees parades and celebrations coincide with St. Patrick's Day, since celebrating Irishness would not be possible without celebrating the act of kicking out the British. But it hadn't been good news for the Americans all along the front, as the disastrous invasion of Quebec demonstrated. Throughout the winter of 1775, the American militia perished from the harsh conditions Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The professionalism of the British soldiers here made itself more apparent than perhaps any other theatre of the entire war. In the end, by June 76, it was a theatre of war that had cost over a thousand American lives and galvanised Quebec's public opinion against the revolutionaries when they had once sympathised with them. But the rebels would not dwell on this loss for long, as Washington moved to reinforce New York, a certain document was being crafted which would give the rebels a purpose, rally new patriots to the American cause, and create a nation. Of course, this was the Declaration of Independence. The creation of a constitution and the Declaration of Independence was not a new or novel idea, nor was it first achieved by the signing of Thomas Jefferson's famous document. In fact, by the 4th of July, 76, seven out of the 13 colonies had already created constitutions for themselves without royal authority. New York, New Hampshire, Massachusetts and four others had already made the transition from colony to state before the famous signatures graced America's most celebrated document. It is often taken for granted that this document was created because America was dying to be free, but in fact the revolution itself was likely saved by these documents, because it finally gave those fighting the British forces a unified and recognisable cause. Before, the revolution was a conflict, a war which many had directed fanatically towards victory, but the exact victory which was desired was a source of disagreement among many rebels. Ideas such as dominion status, dual monarchy, reconciliation, capitulation, simple martyrdom or a full union with Britain were all floating around once the revolution began, so it should be remembered that full independence was never a unifying goal of the rebels, at least not until the important documents were signed. Even then, some would disagree so much with their contents that resignation from the conflict or even changing sides became the only option. 
Thomas Jefferson would explain in a letter to Henry Lee in 1825 that in drafting and writing the Declaration of Independence, he was not trying to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought of, but rather to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take and to appeal to the tribunal of the world for that justification. In my view then, the Declaration of Independence was important for three main reasons. First, it created a unifying goal, a motto for the determined but aimless rebels to flock to. Second, it explained both to those in favour of and against American independence exactly why the American state was entitled to exist. Third, its creation sent a clear message to those in the world who were watching the conflict unfold, because though the Declaration of Independence was meant to unite the rebels, it was also meant to stand up to foreign scrutiny. The approval and search for justification and legitimacy Jefferson was searching for was clearly designed to attract the attention of Britain's greatest enemy, France. France had been watching the conflict unfold since it had begun. The French king, Louis XVI, was eager to get back at Britain for costing his kingdom so much territory during the Seven Years' War, and the troublesome Americans now seemed the best means to do so. France's gradual build-up of aid and eventually military intervention on the side of the revolutionaries is a fact that is often overlooked. Depending on what material you read, you may get varying impressions about the necessity of France to the eventual American victory. The American rebels were certainly full of a determination that the British had never thought possible, and what had initially appeared as an uprising so irrelevant and far away from Britain was now pulling in an ever-increasing amount of resources and straining both Britain's will and its military. But did that mean that the Americans could have achieved their independence without foreign intervention? It is a controversial question, but for now let's look at the facts. 1776 was a year of success, but then defeat, for the rebels. They had taken back Boston, but lost New York and nearly Washington himself in September of that year. The next few months seemed to go according to plan for the British. They consolidated their position around New York and sent Washington packing on numerous occasions, pushing him out of New Jersey and over the Delaware River into Pennsylvania by the year's end. With the British Hessian allies guarding the river... It was expected that Washington would settle in for the winter, but he didn't. He instead chose to counter-attack and threw the Hessian soldiers off balance. Despite Washington's being the smaller force, he achieved a stunning victory at the Battle of Trenton, pushing the British and their allies back out of New Jersey and fortifying his line for the New Year's campaign. His success in this venture should not be overlooked. The American army looked to be on the brink of collapse by the end of 76, and it was only saved by Washington's military ability and the determination of his soldiers. 77's campaigning season saw the British adopt a multi-pronged strategy, with the shared goals of capturing Philadelphia, cutting off the entirety of New England, and then wheeling back to destroy Washington's army. By the end of that year, though, only one of these goals, the capturing of Philadelphia, had been fulfilled, and to make matters worse, the British were not only handed their worst defeats in the battles of Saratoga, but the war was also dynamically changed, and not in their favour. France had been watching the Battle of Saratoga. After months of watching and giving generously, 
Paris began to become actually interested in a military alliance with the Americans. Feelers were sent to the Continental Congress, while statesmen in France debated whether or not to make the war official. One of the worst-kept secrets of the war had been the French, Spanish and Dutch provisions of materials for the American war effort. Great fuss had been raised in London, but the British did not want to encourage the French to become emboldened to act, so they largely left it alone. But the new policy of France, changing as it did over the early months of 1778, from a quiet support and materials to an open military alliance, transformed utterly the direction and dynamic of the revolution into a massive full-scale war. On the 6th of February 1778, the Franco-American Treaty of Friendship and Commerce was signed by both sides. On the 17th of December 1777, France had made history and irked Britain in the process by becoming the first nation to recognise American sovereignty. Such moves meant that Britain saw only too clearly the danger France posed to its current war in the 13 colonies. The British were informed, though it certainly already suspected as much that such declarations were on the way, about the official French declaration of war on the 13th of May 1778, and British officials recalled their ambassador to France immediately after. Spain, interestingly enough, offered to mediate a peace between both nations, but France and Britain ignored her, declaring war on each other almost simultaneously on the 20th of June 1778. Such diplomatic actions sent shockwaves around the world. It undoubtedly changed the course of the war, to the Americans faced with the once daunting prospect of removing the British presence from their shores, the news seemed to promise victory. France was not the only European power that supported the Americans either. France had been on very friendly terms with Spain since the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, and both had planned to pool their resources, especially in the naval theatre, to prepare to take down Britain in a future war. Spain was actively supplying the Americans with aid, primarily to maintain its relationship with France, and this desire to please its French neighbour greatly contributed to Madrid's favouring of the American position. Spain, unlike France, had vast overseas possessions in South and Central America, which it viewed as vital to Spanish prosperity. The dilemma was, if Spain supported one group of colonies in the Americas with their revolt, with their own colonies begin to agitate for their own independence. At the same time, those Spanish officials could not allow the opportunity to severely weaken the British Empire to be missed, and it signed the Treaty of Aranjuez on the 12th of April 1779 with France, and declared war on Britain in June of that year. France also struggled with certain issues emerging from their supporting of the American rebels. For France, though, it was less about colonies and more about ideology. France still possessed the same autocratic system of monarchy that Louis XIV had made famous, but times were changing. There was a notable feeling of tension and dissatisfaction with the current regime in France. As we now know, this feeling will eventually boil over a decade later in 1789. But for Louis's government here... The hypocrisy involved in supporting a country to shed its ruling monarch, even if it was a British one, caused quite a stir in French circles, especially when it was seen what the Americans were actually fighting for. Some saw it as a sign that times were changing, even though the last thing Louis XVI wanted was change. 
there was a third European power who declared war on Britain in support of the American rebels. History has mostly forgotten them, but the Dutch also joined against Britain. The Netherlands had followed the same road as Spain and France once the Revolutionary War broke out, supplying vital raw materials, lending large sums of money, and harassing British vessels by providing escorts for American merchant ships. So why had these previous allies, who had fought side by side only a generation before, suddenly turned on each other? It was due to a number of factors. In brief, this included a number of disagreements with Britain over the legality of their trading with the revolutionaries, the resentment of the Dutch in being pushed by Britain to declare war on the Americans, the growing influence of those who respected the American cause in the Netherlands, and the willingness of the Dutch to recognise the Americans' independence, including such acts as saluting the American flag in 1776. There were other issues too, more associated with trade, where the Dutch established agreements with France, Spain and the Americans to deliver supplies necessary for the construction of navies, pointing to the Freedom of Navigation Acts, which had been signed and were meant to be respected by the British. But Britain knew what the Dutch were doing, shipping supplies to its enemies, so British vessels stopped, searched and often confiscated the contents of those ships. This act increased the tensions as the Dutch claimed that the British had violated their naval rights. The affair of Fielding and Byland on the 31st of December 1779 strained their relations further when a British ship humiliated a Dutch convoy by confiscating its cargo and sending it back to Portsmouth along with much of their crews and they then insisted that the Dutch salute the British flagship before they sailed away. In response to this, the Dutch joined the First League of Armed Neutrality. This was a naval cooperation designed to restrict British powers to stop and search vessels, a league which included Russia, Sweden, Denmark, and which had the potential to create a horrifying situation for Britain if she did not tread carefully. But in fact, this act provoked Britain to declare war on the Dutch Republic in December 1780, starting the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War in the process. Key losses for Britain at Yorktown and the combined weight of European arms against Britain added to the additional threat of invasion by an armada of its European enemies in late 1779, and this persuaded the British Parliament to vote for peace on the 20th of December 1780. Britain had seen its fortunes turn sharply during the war, with its early successes now completely forgotten as the shock of losing such a vast amount of territory, which had been so central to the British identity, now taking its toll. The British King George III was inconsolable despite Parliament's ruling for peace. He then began a bitter struggle to persuade Britain's statesmen to continue the war, but to no avail. Since Parliament controlled taxes and Parliament was not going to implement any new ones for the purpose of war and planned on ending those already set in place, George was bitterly forced to give in. The Thirteen Colonies had left the British Empire and with them went much of Britain's past. But George's nation, while certainly changed, was down but not out. This was not the end of the British Empire, it was merely the end of the First British Empire. George Washington had achieved quite a feat. Twenty years before, he was leading British armies against the French in Canada, 
Now he was the most central figure to the American cause, and he would see his popularity culminate in 1789 when, once America got over its initial hiccups, he was elected as the first ever president of the United States of America. Not the 13 colonies, not the American rebels, and not a British dominion. The aims of a small group of men, remember, less than 50% of the population supported the revolution initially, had grown to overcome ferocious odds and establish America as a nation in the same league of sovereign powers, with technically just as many legal rights as those across the Atlantic. But then again, America was not like just every other nation, and that's what made it special. It was the first case of a colony, really, breaking away in the new world and forming a new nation, based on the ideas of republicanism, democracy, and self-determination. It was the first nation of the new world to acquire its independence from the old, which made it extra special because it meant that a new dynamic would now be present in international and world affairs. In short, Europe could no longer contend with Europe alone. But what of its allies? I know we kind of glossed over that question earlier on, but let's ask it again. Could America have earned its independence without the help of France, Spain or the Netherlands? To answer this, I want to look at the facts, and the facts were that in 1778... The Americans were fighting stubbornly against a British expeditionary force that could not seem to grasp it. It would make sense that the Americans would have the home advantage, but Britain's was the greatest army in the world, and they were facing an enemy who had been civilians for the majority of their lives. Then you look a bit deeper. Even before the official aid came in the form of declarations of war and foreign troops, America was receiving vast quantities of aid from its allies. Some of this, such as the powder, arms and cannons, were central to the American war effort. For that reason alone, it would have been impossible for the rural, agricultural Americans to produce what they needed to fight the war by themselves. And it is for that reason, in my view, not necessarily because of what the soldiers did, but because of what the materials did, that America could not have won on its own. What is clear to me, though, is that Had the French, Spanish or Dutch not interfered militarily and merely continued their supply of materials, the Americans also could have won. The British were demoralised and strained with the campaign in America. They wanted out and many were in favour of peace. Britain was fighting an unpopular war 3,000 miles away without much success. It seemed as though, certainly after the disaster at Saratoga, that Britain was willing to deal It was in fact the entry of the familiar enemy into the war which galvanised the British population and ensured that the war would continue until one side caved in. But by then, the battle for the hearts and minds of the American citizen had long since been lost, which meant that in effect the war had been lost. And this is saying nothing in Britain itself of the fact that unpopular wars, as we now know from experiences such as the War of the Spanish Succession and Anglo-Dutch wars in the past, can scarcely continue for long in Britain unless the actual population support it. On that note then, I think we can bring this episode to an end. I hope I was able to put at least a slightly unique spin on the American Revolution. So please remember to be fit when you're thinking of ways to support this podcast and support me in general. Tell people about the remastered project And if you want to support us, go to wdfpodcast.com. Thanks very much for listening, guys. And I hope you'll tune in whenever the next episode is out. Perhaps 
it's out already. Perhaps it's coming out tomorrow. Perhaps it's coming out in a few hours. But stay tuned. Keep listening. And I will see you all soon. Thanks and goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.